Brexit and the transition period is over. The UK has left the European single market and we are no longer in the EU customs union. So we have finally found an agreement. Glad tidings of great joy. Brexit means breakfast. Brexit. What do you think about Brexit? What's, what's that? Brexit is bothering both ends of the business spectrum. Free trade deal between the UK and the EU. A deal. The result of 2020's torturous negotiations is a 1,246-page document, which I'll admit to not reading in full. But the headlines are... Zero tariffs or quotas on trade between the UK and the EU. Changes to the rules on import and export licensing. New provisions for services which make up the bulk of Britain's economy. And the end of EU pet passports. My name is Nick Wallace. I'm a journalist and this mini-series for the London Business Hub is about helping businesses get to grips with the practicalities of Britain's new trading environment. In today's episode, we'll be joined by the four experts from our first mini-series of the Brexit Ready podcast. In a moment, we'll say hello to Sasha Schoenfeld, a lawyer at Fox Williams Solicitors with expertise on immigration. Then we'll be speaking to Ian Wright, Chief Executive of the Food and Drink Federation, Stephen Sidkin, a lawyer specialising in product labelling and exports, and Anna Ambrose, Director of the London Progression Project. But first, let's welcome Sasha Schoenfeld. Hi, Sasha. Hi there. So this is what you told us last time regarding the employment of EU citizens into UK businesses. Depends, first of all, on whether people are here already or whether they are due to arrive. And if they're going Mm. to arrive, whether they will be doing so after the 1st of January 21. So, Sasha, how has the Brexit deal changed what you were telling your clients in 2021 from what you were telling them last year? It hasn't changed so much as we have a little bit more detail now. I guess the most important thing to say, though, is that the Brexit deal signed on Christmas Eve 2020 doesn't actually provide um, much detail about any new rules that the UK are going to impose. Those new rules are contained in the points-based immigration system that I spoke about the last time we chatted. What does that actually involve? Because I understand that the idea is you're bringing skilled people into the UK rather than what the government uh, seemed not to want, which was unskilled labour making its way over from the EU. Yeah, that's right. It doesn't cover unskilled workers. It covers so-called skilled workers. But I guess the important thing to note is that it doesn't require you to have a very high level position to be able to come to work in the UK. You can come over, for example, you hold an administrative position and you qualify to work here if you are qualified to, say, A-level standard rather than degree standards as used to be the case. Most importantly, your employer will need to be a licensed sponsor in the UK. They will need to then apply for a so-called certificate of sponsorship for you. That's basically a work permit under the new points-based immigration system. And you can come in and take up a post here for a period of up to five years, after which you'd be eligible to qualify for permanent residence. Or if you just want to come in regularly and work regularly, you can do that as well. You haven't got, there is no limit now on the number of times you can come into the UK as a so-called skilled worker. Let's uh, turn this around then, because you said there is uh, some interesting detail in the deal about going to work in the EU, whether it's for business trips or whether it's for longer term assignments. What is the current situation? The most important thing to remember, if you're going to the EU from the UK, each country has its own system. If you're just going for a business trip, you're not going to be going to work there. Your trip will be covered under the Brexit deal, which was finalised on Christmas Eve. Effectively, though, if you're going to take up employment, 
employment there and you're going to do a job, even if it's only temporarily, you need to qualify under the relevant provisions of the country you're going to be visiting. Let me just give you an example, because I I can imagine that there will be some business owners who, let's say, have a thriving export business to France, and they decide they want to open an office there, and they may hire locally, uh, but they may also want to send out one or two of their people from the UK to that office. That is probably going to mean that the people they hire locally will want to visit the UK from time to time. There'll be a lot of traffic back and forth. That is a reasonably common scenario, I would have thought, for people who are trading in Europe. How has their situation changed? What is going to be added to the cost of them doing business in this way? The other direction, going from the UK to the EU, will depend on country to country. My view is, however, that it's a lot less expensive to go from the UK to the EU to work than the other way round. Importantly, there are certain provisions that the UK have imposed for those who are going to be coming very regularly here, um, but who are continuing to live in the EU. I mean, for example, that we, you know, there are plenty of people who effectively commute into the UK uh, from the EU. Say, for example, live in the EU but come weekly to the UK for uh, to work. Now there is a new uh, so-called frontier permit that they've just issued, and that's actually going to be free of charge, and that's worth considering for people who, for example want to continue to have their main residence in the EU, but want to come and work here very regularly, say once a week, once a month or whatever it is. Sasha, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. It's great to speak to you again and get that uh, expertise and insight on what's happening in this brave new world. Really good to speak to you. Good to speak to you too. That was Sasha Schoenfield, partner at Fox Williams Solicitors. On episode two of Brexit Ready last year, we met Ian Wright, chief executive of the Food and Drink Federation. Back then, the question of tariffs was on everyone's mind. But Ian said there was also another matter to be considered. There are two sets of uncertainty. There's uncertainty about tariffs. Will they be there or won't they be there? But also, what is the level of friction about bringing product into the UK? Well, now a tariff-free deal has been struck, what will this actually mean for food and drink businesses in the UK in Brexit Britain. Ian joins me once again. Hi, Ian. Hi, nice to be here. It is headline news, what's happening with the food and drink industry in the UK in the light of Brexit. What has gone right and what has gone wrong? Although we are very, very pleased that there are no tariffs, let me be very clear, that is a massive win for shoppers, consumers, and in particular for those who manufacture food. The problem with the deal is that it does contain some very, very significant provisions, particularly around rules of origin, but also around uh, uh, some other areas. And it also is alongside the withdrawal agreement, which has all sorts of processes in it for export health certificates, for customs checks and other checks that are, if I can use a posh word, immutable. So those can't be changed unless there is a further negotiation. Some of these things can be fixed with with different interpretations or whatever. But for the most part, I think the single conclusion I draw is that a lot of businesses are going to have to re-engineer their supply chains in order to work within the context that this deal creates. Maybe we could start with Northern Ireland because it was always going to be an issue. Where specifically with regard to Northern Ireland do you see any glimmers of hope with what's happening right now? Well, I think there's a will on all sides to make this work. And in fact, in some ways, Northern Ireland is a good beacon for how this is all going to work over the longer term. 
Northern Ireland is both supplied from Great Britain, but it's also supplied via the south. So product goes into Dublin port and then makes its way north. So there are two different supply routes there and they're treated differently. Both routes are important test beds for the whole agreement. What would be your key advice for existing exporters? What would you want to be saying to them about how they think about their supply chains and how they deal with their paperwork? I think with Northern Ireland, I would say it should be the case that whatever difficulties there are at the moment, it is in the interest of both sides to fix them because there's nothing for either side in Northern Ireland having less choice or fewer uh, different competitive products on the shelves and higher prices. There's no way that anybody in either the UK government or the EU Commission wants Northern Ireland shoppers and consumers to be disadvantaged by its position. So the consequence of that is it's much more likely that Northern Ireland will get fixed relatively quickly, i.e. before the summer. I'm much less confident about some of the EU issues, though I also think if you're trading predominantly with the Republic of Ireland, again, I would stick with it because nobody in the EU will want to erect barriers or difficulties that means it's less economically viable to trade in the Republic of Ireland because that will reduce choice. Nonetheless, you can't help but have sympathy for people who just are trying to do deals to sell their produce and think they're doing the right thing only to find their product turned around or binned at, at customs at the borders. I think that there's a particular piquancy about that with food, isn't there? If you're moving most other products, it doesn't much matter how long they're on the dockside. As somebody who used to work in the spirits industry, the truth is that it doesn't much matter if a consignment of scotch or gin sits waiting to be cleared because nothing's going to happen to it other than probably the price is going to go up. Whereas with uh, food and drink, it goes off. And I think that's the responsibility that everybody has here to make sure that we don't waste it, that we don't let it uh, rot, and that we find solutions that are sustainable to these very complex problems. Ian Wright, Chief Executive of the Food and Drink Federation, thank you. Now, Stephen Sidkin is another lawyer and another contributor from Fox Williams Solicitors. Last year, Stephen and I took a deep dive into the labelling of products being exported to the EU. I think the most important thing is that a business determines what are its most important markets. Do whatever you can to ensure that you're able to trade in your most important markets with acceptable risk going forwards. And whether that is trading direct, using a distributor... Uh, trading direct and using an agent, uh, selling online. Uh, Stephen, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me to take part. What does the Brexit deal mean for your clients? What are the benefits and what are the bear traps? For many of our clients, it involves management time being applied to things which they did not expect to have to apply management time to, and cost. I'm talking here about clients who are exporting to the EU27. So to give you perhaps two examples, shortly before the UK left the EU single market, I was contacted by the managing director of one of our fashion clients. They had imported into the UK uh, various products from their supplier in China. 
The imports have been made some time ago, uh, definitely months ago, if not longer. And they were now proposing to supply those uh, products which they had imported from China, or some of them, via Zalando, an online seller in Germany, to German customers. And they have been informed by their logistics handler that because these products would be supplied after the UK had left the EU single market at the end of December last year, that there would be further costs involved. And they questioned that. They said, well, how can that be? And the answer came back from me. It is because of what is called the rules of origin. That means that where goods are made outside of the UK, or for that matter, outside of the EU, and are then imported into the UK or EU respectively for then export to the EU or the UK, if the goods are made outside of the UK or the EU, there's an issue. The whole concept of free trade uh, pre and no uh, tariffs, or, sorry, no duties being imposed presupposes that the goods are being made in the country of origin from which they depart to the counterparty to the free trade agreement. I wonder what we are going to therefore start seeing as a result of this deal and the way it's being implemented. Are supply chains going to have to be completely reimagined? Are goods going to get more expensive or are people simply going to, to give up exporting because the profit margin isn't there anymore? I think we're going to see a combination of all three. I think there will be what is called onshoring take place. That will mean that products, instead of being made perhaps in the Far East, perhaps in Turkey, perhaps in North Africa, will be made instead in the UK. Just, just on that point, is that not a job creation opportunity, even if it does mean that the products themselves are going to be more expensive to consumers? Almost certainly. There will be opportunities in terms of job creation. Great. But there will be consequences in terms of prices increasing. The reason the prices are for a particular product, what they are, relates to uh, the market conditions in which the products are manufactured and the market conditions in which the products are sold. I do believe, however, for some industries where there have been what might be described as unnecessary restriction placed by the EU on their development in respect of uh, pharma perhaps being one, that there might well be opportunities for UK businesses because they will not be subject to the same degree of restriction, which is perhaps slowing down their development. When you say pharma, you, you mean the pharmaceutical industry itself? Yes. But unfortunately, will it make the difference? I don't think it will. Stephen Sicken, thank you very much indeed for your time. You're very welcome. Thank you. And finally, it's time to catch up with Anna Ambrose, director of the London Progression Project. Anna joined us in our last series to discuss, among many other things, reskilling and rebuilding a workforce which may have previously been reliant on immigration. One element of the work that we're doing is around brokering what's called the transfer of apprenticeship levy funds from large companies to small businesses. Anna, hello. When you look at the deal that's been struck, bearing in mind that's what's changed since we spoke last, I know that you're focused on pushing London forward and making sure that it keeps its place as a preeminent world city. 
Do you think Britain's trade deal has harmed or helped you as an organisation in terms of the way that you have to, to sell London and help businesses within the London area? I think probably a bit of a mix of those two things. I think, you know, we're all about encouraging and supporting business leaders and especially small business leaders to invest in the skills of their workforce, um, whether that's taking on new people and training them or whether that's about upstilling their existing staff. At the absolute crux of that, really fundamentally, is either stability or a really clear picture of a trajectory for the future. So for businesses to be able to invest in skills, they need to be able to plan for the future. They need to know whether they need, you know, very basics, more staff or fewer staff over the next two, three, five years, um, whether they are expecting to need new skills, whether they think they have uh, a kind of changing skills need, whether they just need more of something that is hard to find, whatever it may be, it's that clarity and ability to plan which really kind of underpins the ability of businesses to invest in skilling their people. So to that extent, the deal is one piece of great certainty, you know, whatever we think of it at least we know what we're dealing with and you know some of the ramifications will take a little bit of time for businesses to to kind of fully appreciate and adapt to I think in reality most businesses probably don't feel hugely clear what that really means at the moment as you say particularly with so much uncertainty caused by COVID as well I think the unknowns about the impact of the deal are clearly a barrier at the moment to businesses feeling confident enough to invest in skills, but actually do give us a real opportunity to get businesses focused in a different way on maybe rather than thinking, I can't find the skills, thinking actually, how do I grow the skills that I need and that my sector needs? Sure. And the big thing about that, of course, is cost or investment. Before there might have been a steady supply of, of cheap labour coming over from the continent, that tap has been turned off. And if you want to skill up the native population, then that requires investment. How can you help companies who, if they are to grow, need the staff and may need to train the staff themselves? The work specifically that we're doing is in some ways all about moving money to where it can do the most good for both individuals and for businesses. Uh, so a lot of our work uh, is around uh, the transfer of apprenticeship levy funding from large businesses who pay into the levy uh, to small businesses who want to develop the skills of their people but need that funding to do so. But I think there's also probably more that government can do and that you know projects like ours can do to really make sure that initiatives around skills and around training are you know that the subsidy for those or whatever the incentives are etc are really directed at both the sectors and businesses and individuals. Is there an opportunity here to do something completely radical because to a certain degree the government has got a blank slate it's going to have to uh, apply the defibrillator to the economy once we all get our jabs and things hopefully start getting back to normal. I was speaking to a an NHS professor earlier today who said he's booked a holiday for July because uh, he's optimistic that by then the worst of it may be over. So assuming that this year we are going to come out of the pandemic and the economy will have to once again stand on its own two feet, is this an opportunity for the government to think really radically about the way it funds the skills gap and puts more money into to training up young people who, as you say, may have been displaced by the coronavirus? What what would you like to see if you if you did have that blank slate and and the opportunity to invest wherever you wanted in, in the job sector? 
I think there is an opportunity to be more radical. We're expecting an FE white paper, you know, pretty much any day now, I think, and it will be be interesting to see what's in there. The need to drive the development of skills at uh, a local level is really important because, you know, we're, we're working specifically in London. There are initiatives uh, along roughly similar um, similar lines in other parts of the country. And I think, you know, there's real strength in um, local understanding both of the needs of uh, local population. Um, so, you know, who who are the people who've been displaced from what sectors and then what are the, you know, where are the skill shortages, where is the growth um, and you know, the the kind of intensive and really detailed work that can happen locally, where actually you just can't make that policy at a national level, effectively, I would say. So I think there's something about empowering a lot of this work to happen um, at a, a regional and a local level. I think, um, I think small business, for me, is really vital in this. I think, um, you know, certainly in the apprenticeships arena where I'm working, I think they they get forgotten. And I think, um, you know, there's a there's a real need, I think, for skills policy, you know, linked to industrial policy, linked to, to all the issues around productivity that we see, actually like focus on small business. I think that's that's where we have a real opportunity to make more of a difference. Anna Ambrose, Director of the London Progression Project. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to listen. I hope you found some of it useful. Next time, we'll be speaking directly to business owners who are having to negotiate this brave new post-Brexit world. We'll be pairing them with experts in their sectors to get advice and answers, which we hope will be of use to everyone who has an interest in bringing growth and prosperity to UK PLC. If some of the issues raised by our discussion today have got you thinking about what you might need to do next, the London Business Hub is here to help. You can book an appointment with one of their EU specialist advisors who can help you work through the issues that might affect your business. They can also provide free specialist support from employment lawyers, accountants specialising in the new VAT regime and experts on IP and data. Go to www.businesshub.london.